You know, I'm beginning to think that these Democrats may not have our best interests at heart. Now, I, I don't want to go out on a limb here, but it just seems to me from everything they've been doing the past few days and weeks and months and well, quite a while that, that the Democrats actually don't want our country to be strong, to recover, to come together, to maintain law and order. The most recent example of this came when Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono was asked a simple question. Will you condemn Antifa? Will you condemn the anarchists who are attacking people and smashing in skulls and breaking down windows and setting the country on fire? Senator Ted Cruz posed this question to Maisie Hirono. And what did she do? She stormed out of the Capitol. We should all join hands and, and denouncing and uh, <laughs> whatever words you want to use about violent extremism of all stripes. And I think we can all agree on that. So to constantly accuse Democrats of not caring about that is re really, uh, I, I, I can only say that you, you, you aren't listening. So I hope this is the end of this hearing, Mr. Chairman, and that we don't have to listen to any more of your rhetorical speeches. Thank you very much. I'm leaving. Well, I appreciate the, as always, kind and uplifting words of Senator Hirono. And I would also note that throughout her remarks, she still did not say a negative word about Antifa, nor has any Democrat here. Uh, they instead engage in a political game where they depend. You're welcome to say something negative about Antifa right now. Oh, she's welcome to say something negative about Antifa right now, uh, but she won't. Instead, she'll storm out of the building. It's funny. This is almost like the flip of what the Democrats say to conservatives. They'll say, say Black Lives Matter. And Republicans who don't want to associate themselves with a Marxist organization say, well, all lives matter. They say, but say Black Lives Matter. Well, that's what the Republicans are doing here. They say, will you condemn Antifa? Democrats say, yeah, we condemn extremists. No, 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 not extremists generally. Do you condemn Antifa? And they can't do it. They can't do it because Antifa is the militant wing of the Democratic Party. This is the tactic that conservatives are going to have to do. They're going to have to put all the pressure back on Democrats to answer for their open contradictions, for their open calls to tear down this country. We'll get into all of it. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. Before we get into it, I have to thank our friends over at Rock Auto. You know, I'm not exactly the most expert in auto parts, okay? I know this will shock you. So when something breaks on my car, which has happened a few times, unfortunately, in the past few years, when you go to a brick and mortar store, what happens? You go in, you say, do you have the part for my car? And they don't. They will then go online. They'll probably go to rockauto.com. They'll order the part, then they'll charge you twice as much. Don't do that. Don't play that game. Rockauto.com always has the lowest prices available. Okay, there, there are no gimmicks here. They just offer you reliably low prices. It's family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years, which by my calculation is pretty much as long as there has been an online. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. The catalog is unique, and most importantly, it is remarkably easy to navigate. So easy to navigate, even I can do it. Go to rockauto.com right now, see all the parts available for your car or truck, right? Knowles, Canada, W, L, E, S, in their How Did You Hear About Us box, so that they know that we sent you. That is rockauto.com. 
I don't think these Democrats have our best interests at heart. I, I, I think that probably is just common sense these days. But I think we have to take it further. I think they have an active, open antipathy for our country. I don't think they like our country. I think we knew this 12 years ago when Barack Obama ran for president and he said he wanted to fundamentally transform our country. Now that he used high flying rhetoric. So a lot of people didn't, didn't hear it then. And, and no one wanted to hear that Barack Obama didn't like the country, but it is simply a fact that you don't want to fundamentally transform things that you like. You, you wouldn't say that to your spouse, honey, I love you. I can't wait to fundamentally transform you. Well, now it's a little less subtle. Now you have Democrats openly cheering on anarchists. You have Democrats refusing to condemn these organized, violent street gangs and anarchists. I actually, part of what the reason I'm in DC is Senator Cruz and I sat down with the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. What a name. And we talked about this, how highly organized it all is. The violence in Portland, the violence in other cities. They won't condemn it on the left. And if they won't condemn it, I think the only reasonable conclusion we can draw is that Antifa, these violent organized thugs, are the militant wing of the Democratic Party. Just as in the 19th century, the Klan was the militant wing of the Democratic Party. I'm not saying they were synonymous, but there was a lot of overlap there and the Klan did things that the, the organized official Democratic Party could not. I think we have to say the same thing today about Antifa because the Democrats know that Antifa exists. They deny that Antifa exists. Jerry Nadler, very prominent Democratic congressman, says, oh, that's just, that's just propaganda. There's no such thing as Antifa. Maisie Hirono refuses to condemn Antifa. At this hearing on the, on the violence in the streets, none of the Democrats on the panel would condemn Antifa. What's so hard about it? They harangue us all the time to say black lives matter, which is an obvious statement that everyone believes because they want, they want us to ally with an openly Marxist group. And frankly, we do it. You know, we, we do it when we, when we utter that phrase, but the Democrats for their part won't condemn Antifa. Beyond that, they're now openly attacking the flag. This started with Colin Kaepernick. N now it is widespread. Now it's everywhere. You've got members of the House of Representatives taking a knee as a symbol of disrespect to the American flag, which is a symbol of our country. And by the way, this is a culmination of the progressive project. I don't think that it, it, this is some outrageous, outlandish kind of slander or extreme rhetoric to say that Democrats don't like our country very much. This has been the case for a hundred years because the premise of the progressive project is that the country was really bad and we're about to make it much better. It's the opposite of the conservative project, which says that our country actually was pretty good. And, and we're actually the ones who have been kind of messing it up a little bit, but we, we do want to live up to our highest ideals. We've been talking all week about the, the baseline differences between progressives and conservatives. One of those is pretty simple. Progressives think that things naturally get better. Conservatives think that things naturally decay that's a big difference. Progressives think because of the laws of evolution. And they'll, they use these terms explicitly when they talk about Charles Darwin, for instance, in the writing of Woodrow Wilson. They think that the order of nature is for things to improve. But conservatives know that the order of nature is things for decay. How can we figure out which one is right? Well, I'll give you a good example. Head on out, just go out into the middle of a field somewhere and put up a big white picket fence and then leave that white picket fence there for two months or two years, or two decades, I don't know, come back. Is the fence going to look nicer or is it going to 
look dingier, dirtier, decay, fall apart. Obviously the latter. Leave a a 25-year-old Hollywood model. Look at a a 25-year-old Hollywood model and then two decades later, look at that same model. Have things gotten better or have things gotten worse? With plastic surgery in LA, uh, who knows, but probably the order is decay. We all know that that is the natural order. But the Democrats, the progressives won't believe that. They think things are getting better. And so as things don't get better, as things remain basically the same, they have to denigrate the past. And that's what they're doing. This is true at even the most moderate levels of the Democratic Party. You you just saw yesterday that the Revolutionary Communist Party has endorsed Joe Biden. Now, the Revolutionary Communist Party, it sounds like some kind of imaginary thing from a conservative fever dream. It's real. I actually went and I covered one of their rallies uh, not that long ago. And they had a rally in Los Angeles. I showed up. They said, America's terrible. We've got to defund the police. We've got to tear down this building. The, The rally was right outside of a police station. And then they said, we've got something really special. And they burned an American flag. They desecrated the flag. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so shocking. Well, guess what? That's now the mainstream of the Democratic Party. (laughs) <laughs> the things that they were saying at the Revolutionary Communist Party rally are now in the mainstream of the Democratic Party. No wonder that Bob Avakian, the leader of the Revolutionary Communist Party, is endorsing Biden. He said this. It was a tepid endorsement, but it was an endorsement nonetheless. Biden is not better than Trump in any meaningful way, except that he is not Trump and is not part of the move to consolidate and enforce fascist rule with everything that means. Another person endorsing Biden, Angela Davis, a communist terrorist. Angela Davis, Davis who is not a on the fringe of the left. She is welcome in the left. She is embraced by the left. She said the same thing. I, I don't love Joe Biden. I don't think he's a communist, but he'll be easy to manipulate. And that's what we'll do. Consider the double standard here between the Democrats and the Republicans. Every time some fringe wacko who has ever been a Republican or a Democrat for that matter, who has ever said anything nice about Trump, but let's say he's a racist or a bigot or a terrible person, Donald Trump is asked, all of us are asked, ad nauseum, do you condemn? Do you disavow? Will you condemn and disavow? And conservatives say, yeah, sure. David Duke, great example, right? How many times was Trump asked, do you condemn David Duke? He's asked this dozens and dozens of times. One time he actually joked, he said, how many times do I have to condemn David Duke? Who cares about David Duke? David Duke's not a thing. No, he has no influence whatsoever, but sure, I condemn David Duke. Well, What happens when the Democrats are asked to condemn the Revolutionary Communist Party or an open communist like Angela Davis? One, they're not asked the question. Two, they won't do it. The Biden campaign has said, we welcome anyone's support who will support our campaign and oppose Trump. I think what we need to do, we're always playing defense as conservatives. Maybe there's something about being a conservative that that makes you, you know, want to kind of be more passive and be on the defense. We've got to go on the offense in the same way the left does. Constantly ask them, do you condemn the Revolutionary Communist Party? Do you condemn Angela Davis? Do you condemn the three founders of Black Lives Matter who call themselves open Marcus? Do you, con- do you disavow? Do you condemn? Do you disavow? See what they say to it, because they won't do it. If they can't condemn Antifa, which is killing people in the streets, attacking people, burning down the country, how could they do that? What does this mean for the election in, in November? What do these endorsements mean? Well, it means that the Trump campaign, in terms of the ground game, is doing better than Democrats. You wouldn't know that from the mainstream media. The mainstream media are trying to tell you that Biden's poll numbers are doing great. He would win in a landslide if the election were held tomorrow. Well, Biden's poll numbers have been sliding, but that's not even the question. Right now, we're we're still 90 days out from the election. The polls don't mean anything. 
Unfortunately, with national mail-in voting, the polls might mean something because people are going to start voting much earlier than election day at, a, at huge numbers. I think part of, that's partly the reason why the Biden campaign is trying to push off the debates and why they're trying to push up the time frame on which people can send in these mail-in ballots is because the more you see of Joe Biden, the worse his numbers get, the more decay you see in that campaign. But just look at the ground game. So far, the, the Trump camp has registered 100,000 new voters ahead of the election. That's more than the Democrats. And actually, since the 2016 election, Republicans have gained 133,000 more registered voters than Dems in Pennsylvania, 216,410 more voters than Dems in North Carolina, and 87,000 more voters than Dems in Florida. This is according to state data that was just reviewed by Axios. Axios is a, a left-wing outlet. Axios has actually has been gunning for the Trump campaign for the, for the past week or so. But those numbers don't lie. Those are important numbers in swing states. So no matter what the, the news media tell you, this thing that we were talking about yesterday, about the silent majority, maybe people who are not lifelong Republicans, people who are not your typical conservative, they're coming out and they're getting turned on to politics. Trump pulled out a, a whole new range of voters in 2016 that you hadn't heard from since the Reagan Democrats of the 1980s. Well, those people might turn out again. A lot of Trump supporters look different than the media tell us they're supposed to look. In fact, there was a group, it was called, I think it was called Blacks for Trump, Black Voters for Donald Trump, marched through Los Angeles just the other day. Take a listen to what they have to say. Now, those are the black lives that matter. Not what? Nothing? No cover on old magazine? Kind of 10 month old that died over on Monday, no cover on old magazine? The 11-year-old, the 5-year-old in, in, his own, in his own crib, no no cover on old magazine. Talking about kids who have been killed because of violence in the streets. Not from the cops, but violence in the streets. Those black lives don't matter. Very peaceful. It's not, you don't usually see people wearing Trump logos in the middle of Los Angeles. And this contradicts the official narrative. You're supposed to say Black Lives Matter. You're not supposed to be holding up signs that have Trump's logo. And more importantly than that, people are talking about, you know, the color of their skin or they're talking about the Trump logo they have. But the biggest symbol that they're carrying with them is not the Trump symbol. It's not their identity politics symbol. It's not their skin color. It's the American flag. That's literally the biggest symbol they've got, right? It dwarfs the other symbols. That's the key here. I think some conservatives believe that you can divvy up the electorate in the same way that Democrats have using the tactic of identity politics, which is you, you get people in a corner on their skin color or on their race or, or rather, you know, on their nationality, for instance, or on their sex or on their sexual orientation or their sexual preferences or whatever, right? And you just keep divvying these up. You invent whole new identity categories, which the left has done systematically since the 60s. And then you get them to embrace that as their primary identity, and then they'll win. And some conservatives think, okay, well, if we just do that, but we get those groups to flip for conservatives and Republicans, then we can win. But that's not how it works. The moment that you divvy up the electorate that way and you make some secondary feature people's primary identity, they're already in for the left. That is the tactic of the left. The tactic of the left is division. The tactic is dissolution. The tactic is turning one against the unity of one's country to fundamentally transform society. So the way that conservatives can do it is by uniting people, bringing them and giving them a vision of the common good. That's what Trump did. 
That was Trump's appeal in 2016. He said, we all bleed the same blood of patriots. Not black people should vote for me. And, but should consider themselves primarily black people. No, it's consider yourselves Americans. We're all Americans. It's that uniting message that is going to bring people together. The key here is not, not a blacks for Trump sign. The key is the American flag. The left turns against the American flag. The right must embrace it. That's a choice. And it's a choice that's going to win out if they can make that pitch through November. You know, Condoleezza Rice made this point Uh, just the other day. Condoleezza Rice was doing an interview. She you know, is probably the most establishment Republican that you can get and obviously served in the Bush administration. But, but even she was pointing out this issue of identity politics. And she said, we need to get to a point, not where we're denying the black experience, not where we're, you know, minimizing the role of Jim Crow or slavery, but at least where we don't tell black people what to think. I'm someone who believes very much that we were we had a birth defect at founding. Slavery was a birth defect. And it still has an impact. Uh, when I hear people say, oh, I want us to be colorblind. No, I actually don't think we're ever going to be. I don't really care if we're colorblind. But I would like to get to the place that when you see somebody who is black, you don't have preconceived notions of what they're capable of, who they are, of of what they're capable of, of who they are, and she goes on to say, of what they think. You know, the the Joe Biden example where he says, if you don't, if you don't know whether you're going to vote for me or Trump, then you ain't black, right? That's what uh, the woman Hannah Jones, who's behind the 1619 Project, she said, well, there's a difference between being racially black and politically black, meaning if you're a black person and you're authentically black, then you have to vote for Democrats. And Condoleezza Rice is saying that's terrible. Donald Trump is saying that's terrible too. But this politics of identity didn't happen by accident. There's a great book just came out from the Heritage Foundation scholar, Mike Gonzalez. It's called The Plot to Change America. You know, actually, I've got a copy of it right here. The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. I I hosted with Mike a uh, a Q&A and a discussion for the Heritage Foundation. I think you can find that link online. I thought it was a great discussion. Mike is a very interesting guy. And what he plots out in the book is how left-wingers, very radical left-wingers, open Marxists, for the last 60 years or so, have plotted with major institutions such as the Ford Foundation, with the federal bureaucracy, to not just recognize a grassroots movement of people who are embracing their ethnic or their racial identity, but actually left-wingers who contrived those racial identities so that they could divvy up the electorate and move the country to the left. Great example of this was Jorge Ramos. Jorge Ramos, who is the journalist, he's the reporter for Univision, even though he's really a left-wing activist, who that, that's his role as a journalist. Uh, he had an interview uh, yesterday with Spain's El País Semanal, and he was asked this question, do you hope to see a Latino president? What does Jorge say? Of course, not just to see one, but I hope I'm able to cover one as a journalist. There are more Latinos than African-Americans. They've already had one. The next giant step would be to see a Latina in the White House. Now, there's a lot buried in this, this one answer. Obviously, the interview goes on and delves the project for it, but just that one answer says, One, of course I want a Latino president. And why? Why does he think it's time for a Latino president? Well, black people had one. And so we should have one. The the implication here being that the Latino experience in America 
is analogous to the black experience. But that's actually not true. It was the theory behind the creation of identity politics, but it isn't true. The theory behind the creation of identity politics, which began in earnest in the 60s and 70s and was undertaken by social scientists, in particular the Ford Foundation, is that you can analogize the experience of Mexican people and South American people and Asian people and women and homosexuals and and every other kind of group. You can analogize those experiences to the black experience. We're finally seeing a little pushback on that because that simply isn't the case. I mean, there's a fundamental distinction here, right? Which is that for most black people in America, their ancestors were brought over on slave ships. They did not choose to come. Whereas for every other group, their ancestors did choose to come to America. Just that difference alone creates incomparable, uh, an incomparable racial situation in the United States. To say nothing then of Jim Crow and the, the legacy of slavery, as we call it. Even the group, the Latino group, is a creation of the 1960s and 70s. When social scientists, in particular the Ford Foundation, decided to try to push this racial identity, a homogenized group identity, for Mexicans and South Americans and even people over in Spain or people in the Caribbean even, and call them Hispanic initially or then Latino, this, this identity group was rejected by most Hispanics or Latinos. They didn't identify that way primarily. Mexican Americans did not identify as Hispanic. They, and even today, you still see about a quarter of Hispanics or Latinos would identify primarily in that way. Other ways they would identify is from their nationality, either of origin or of immigration, identify as Americans. Another example, Arabs. Arab Americans, during the Obama administration, they tried to make a, a new identity group called MENA, Middle East and North Africa, MENA. Thankfully, it didn't catch on. But the experience of Arabs in America is they've always been considered white. You look at someone like, uh, I don't know, someone, someone who's in the MENA category would be like Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana. Blue-eyed, you know, he's now the president of Purdue. Does, does he consider himself an aggrieved racial minority? No, of course not. Steve Jobs. Is he a, a, an aggrieved racial minority? No, of course not. Raises another question. We're told all the time that white privilege exists. But if white privilege exists, why is there a group of people seeking to deny their white designation and create a new identity politics group? Linda Sarsour, one of the most prominent left-wing uh, Islamic people in the country. She famously started wearing her hijab in her activism because she said, quote, without the hijab, I'm just another white woman. She sees that this alleged privilege is actually a disadvantage. That is a contrivance. This whole identity politics thing is a contrivance. Trump needs to run on the flag. He's got to run actively against this. He, and, he, and he has been doing that for some time. But that's the message. If he runs on the campaign, if he, if he runs on the flag as his campaign, the only way he will lose is if Democrats shut down the country or try to steal the election in the mail. Unfortunately, they are trying to do both. There was an amazing press briefing yesterday with Kaylee McEnany, who makes our national heart go pitter-patter. Kaylee McEnany is there answering reporters' questions. And some of the questions don't really seem like questions. Some of the questions seem like activism, like they were trying to push her to do something. And what were the reporters trying to push her to do, trying to push the president to do? They were trying to get them to shut down, not just some areas or a hot spot with the virus, trying to get them to shut down the entire country. 
this president's hard at work and he'll continue to work so you're hard. doing everything yes. that you can possibly do when there are still waits for getting test results back, when you have declined to impose, it, uh, to impose a national mask mandate, when you're saying you won't shut down the, the uh, entire country again. The president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, he said two days ago that he believed that the only way to have a real strong, robust economic recovery would be to shut the country down again for a month to six weeks. I know that this idea of short-term pain for long-term gain has been shot down before by President Trump, but has, has it been given any more consideration given the recent flares across the country? These parasites are unbelievable. <laughs> These left-wing journalists. Hey, so could you please, when, I mean, we should, uh, I, I, look, I'm not advocating one point or another, but we're going to shut down the country, right? Look, there's short-term pain for long-term gain. Do we have any reason to believe a complete shutdown of our country would give us any long-term gain? Some establishment liberals told us that that's the case, to shut down until the election. But do we have any evidence that that's true? Remember they told us 15 days to slow the spread? I think they told us that about 15 years ago. They did, they did tell us, well, I think it was about 140 days ago. I don't think that led to long-term gain. In fact, I think the lockdown has caused much, much, much more damage to people's lives, to the country as a whole, than the coronavirus has so far. So do we have any evidence of what they're saying? No, of course not. They just want to shut down the country so there's not even a glimmer of an economic recovery, so people are kept out of work, so people are kept frustrated and angry, so that Trump gets blamed for it. You know, the, the whole premise has been, from the left, just shut down for 15 days, it'll be, it'll be painful, but then it'll all be so much better. And conservatives get fooled by it. But what happens? You shut down for 15 days, and it doesn't make it easier to reopen, it makes it easier to remain shut down for months, which is what happened. Same thing with the masks. Just wear the masks and that'll make it easier to reopen society. Let me ask you something. As the masks have become more common, has that led us to progressively reopen society? No, it's led us progressively to shut it down even more. And now they say, let's just shut down the country for, it'll be really quick. It'll be like four weeks and then we'll reopen. It'll be, we'll go like gangbusters. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times. What are we even doing? Shame on the whole country if they fool us that many times. They're doing it to cheat the election. And at the same time, when they say shut down, that is the pretext to have national mail-in voting. Even though in, in, in fleeting moments of honesty, the left-wing news media have admitted the mail-in ballots don't work. We'll get to that in one second. We'll get to Nancy Pelosi's novel coronavirus cure. It seems that Nancy thinks that puffing on the old Peruvian parsley is going to help you, it's going to help you uh, recover from coronavirus. You're not allowed to talk about hydroxychloroquine, but if you're, uh, if you're talking about that old, those old jazz cigarettes, you know, that old hippie oregano, then apparently that's going to help. Uh, we'll get into all of that. First, though, I've got to thank you. Thank you for heading over to the Michael Knowles Show YouTube channel. We like that you're on the Daily Wire YouTube channel. That's great. Appreciate it. We'll give Ben those clicks, but it's also good to go to the Michael Knowles Show YouTube channel. Also, All Access, you know, is our uh, most exclusive membership tier. So uh, head on over and join All Access if you haven't already. You will get early access to new Daily Wire products like our new limited edition baseball bat in collaboration with Pillbox Bat Company, handcrafted here in the United States, emblazoned with the Daily Wire logo. This run of bats will be engraved with the individual number in the order they were produced from one 
to 100. Uh, if you want to do that, you've got to be a member of All Access. That's the only group that can that can get the bat. Text the, the keyword baseball to 83400 to purchase your collector's edition bat. Also get 20% off All Access right now with coupon code ACCESS. That is baseball. Text it to 84300 and use the coupon code ACCESS. Head on over to Daily Wire. We'll be right back with a lot more. We've got breaking news. One of the mainstream media networks has been honest for a change. And they admitted, in a very rare moment, they admitted that the mail-in ballots are not working. Listen to the report. Tonight, six weeks after the New York Democratic primary, congressional candidate Suraj Patel doesn't know if he won or lost because election officials have yet to announce a winner. It was just a complete mess of a system. The reason? 10 times more New Yorkers, a whopping 1.8 million, requested absentee ballots than did four years ago. Experts tell NBC News New York election officials were woefully unprepared. Governor Andrew Cuomo had tried to make the process easier by sending postage-paid envelopes with all requested ballots. But that ended up backfiring because, to be counted, ballots need to be postmarked with a date, something the post office doesn't usually do for prepaid metered mail. So those ballots, thousands of them, were not counted. Thousands of ballots not counted. And that's not a dummy experiment. Those are real ballots that were not counted. You saw the experiment, though, from that, that local news affiliate in Philly. They mailed out 100 fake ballots to a P.O. box, and they got a couple birthday cards. So I don't know, I don't know what, what happened to some of the other mail. They got some mail that they weren't supposed to get. A lot of it lagged behind by four days, even over a week. And then three of the 100 ballots gone permanently. They just didn't get them. Well, three out of 100 is 3%. 80 to 100 million people expected to vote by mail in November. It's a lot of votes. Do you think 3% could swing an election? Of course it could. Are we really willing to stake our election, the integrity of our elections, on a system that we now know doesn't work? We know it doesn't work in theory by experiments. Uh, we, we know that it doesn't work in the actual practice of voting for real candidates. But that's what the left is pushing for. It's also going to create this problem where on election night, you're not going to know who won. Because usually the absentee ballots, you know, people who are too frail or elderly to leave or people who, who are traveling or who are abroad, they send in their absentee ballots. But the elections are so rarely close enough that the absentee ballots really matter that they just don't get counted. Or by the time they get counted, the, the winner has already been announced. Well, that won't be the case if 80 to 100 million people are voting by mail. In addition to all the other problems that creates, we're not going to know on election night who won which is what the left wants. Because it's kind of a win either way for them. Either they can cheat it at the, at the mail-in ballots, or they can create this, this scene of President Trump, the fascist, refusing to concede the election. Never mind that the, when was the left, um, the left actually conceded an election on election night? Hillary Clinton didn't do it in, in 2016. Al Gore famously didn't do it for a very long time after the 2000 election. So that's the scene they're going to create. Either way, they win because it, it will fulfill the image that they are now concocting or they can just outright steal it. It's a real, 
a double standard going on here. It's a, it's a, it's a tough situation they've backed us into. The one thing we know though is the arguments they're making on the surface are not to be believed. They are disingenuous arguments. They don't have the best interests of the voters. They don't have the best interests of our country at heart. And, and you see this every so often. You see the obvious hypocrisy. For instance, when, when the left says you can't go to church, you're not allowed to leave your home, but you are allowed to go and protest for BLM. You're not allowed to go to your grandma's funeral, but we can have 100,000 people go to George Floyd's funeral or John Lewis's funeral for that matter. You say, well, how, what is the virus that smart? That, that, uh, analytical that it can decide it's, it's only going to go to the conservative events and affect people? Of course not. Pelosi's making this argument now. So Nancy Pelosi, as, as the Senate is debating the COVID relief bill, decides to cram in a bunch of handouts for the marijuana industry. And, and one of the arguments she's making is that marijuana will help you to recover from coronavirus. Take a listen to Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, cocaine Mitch, tearing it apart. Speaker Pelosi is still agitating for strange new special interest carve-outs for the marijuana industry, and even claiming they are COVID-related. She said that with respect to this virus, marijuana is, quote, a therapy that has proven successful. You can't make this up. I hope she shared her breakthrough with Dr. Fauci. (laughs) Hello, Dr. Fauci. Yes, it's Nancy. I just want to let you know... I've got the solution. I've got the cure. Now, meanwhile, the leftist is telling doctors, physicians, epidemiologists, virologists, that if they talk about their own personal experience with hydroxychloroquine over the past several years or decades even, that is dangerous medical misinformation. When doctors say that it's worked on their patients, that has to be banned from social media. And if anyone does post it to social media, their accounts will be banned from social media. You're allowed to say that, but Nancy Pelosi is allowed to say that marijuana cures coronavirus. That's, which obviously is not true, but even if it were true, an outrageous double standard. It would seem to me the left does not want this thing to get better. I know in the olden days when the left pretended that they loved America and loved our country and they were, they were the true patriots, we were not allowed to question the patriotism of the left. But I I think since they've uniformly started cheering desecration of the American flag, we're, we're finally allowed to question it. Well, the same thing goes with this lockdown. This lockdown is killing people. The the lockdown is killing people through, through destroying livelihoods, first of all, through what what we are seeing as uh, increasing rates of not just suicide, but violence in the streets and through drug addiction and through all all of the pathologies that accompany 50 million people being thrown out of work. The Democrats don't care. They're willing to take that hit on the country. One, because it's not going to really affect them, but two, because they think it'll help them win in November. Even Bill Maher, who's a kind of moderate left winger, moderate liberal, he, he said this months ago. He said, yeah, I think we should have a recession. He was, con- he was condemned for it. He was criticized for it in public because they said, you know, you don't want to ruin people's lives just to win an election. And he said, yeah, no, I do. I think it would be better for people to have that short-term pain, you know, of, of getting thrown out of their jobs for the long-term gain of getting rid of Donald Trump. And now we're even seeing this on hydro- hydroxychloroquine, right? You've got very respected doctors, that Yale epidemiologist in Newsweek, that group of doctors that gave the press conference in Washington, saying that there's a lot of evidence that hydroxychloroquine helps. 
Well, if hydroxychloroquine works, if that Yale epidemiologist is right, and we've got, we've got the cure, we've got the treatment, then we could just give it to people and reopen the country, right? They can't have that. They don't want us to reopen the country. Even some schools now that are setting dates, school systems that are setting dates to reopen, are, are saying that they'll reopen on November 6th. They'll reopen the first week after the election. They're not even trying to hide it anymore. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this pressure, the Trump campaign, which is doing a lot better these days, they're still, they still don't see what's going on. They're still making some missteps. The, the clearest example of this was a, a fundraising letter from the Trump campaign that just came out yesterday. The letter says, friend, I know how difficult the past few months has been you know, blah, 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 give me money, please, please, you know, uh, that's the implication at least. But the explicit message is, I'm writing to you now not to ask for a contribution, but to ask for your help. We're all in this together. And while I know there's been some confusion surrounding the usage of face masks, I think it's something we should all try to do when we are not able to socially distance from others. I don't love wearing the masks either. Masks may be good. They may be just okay, or they may be great. They can possibly help us get back to our American way of life that so many of us have rightly cherished before we were terribly impacted by the China virus. My feeling is we have nothing to lose and possibly everything to gain, so put on the mask. I don't know who, I don't think Trump wrote this email himself. I don't know who authorized it. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. I'm not even telling you this. If you want to wear a mask, fine, go ahead and wear the mask. I, I don't really care. I don't think Trump needs to send out the opposite email, which is don't you ever wear masks. Masks are terrible. I think he shouldn't take the bait. I think he shouldn't take the premise because his idea is the masks may be good or great or wonderful. Now there's another option. They can be harmful to our culture and to our politics because the premise here is the masks will help us reopen. And I think we've seen they won't. They will be used as evidence, as a symbol that we are not yet ready to reopen and that we need to remain closed because the masks, rather than make people feel safer, actually make them more nervous. They make them look at their fellow citizens as walking piles of germs. They are, they are an evidence, a buttress for this idea that we've all got to lock down because this is super duper serious. We've never seen anything like this before. Even though the coronavirus pandemic is less deadly than pandemics we've seen in the last century where we didn't lock down the economy. This is a, a fundamentally political difference, not a medical or scientific difference. And the Trump campaign, I don't know why, but they're buying into that, that left-wing symbol and that left-wing premise. Not a good idea. They're doing it again with the RNC, with the Republican National Convention. First, the convention was going to be in Charlotte, then, then North Carolina shut that down. Then it was going to be in Florida. For whatever reason, they shut that down. Now it looks like there's not going to be much of a convention and, and President Trump seems that he's going to accept his party's nomination as the 2020 nominee in private or in a little speech from the White House or something like that. Another big mistake. I get it. It's very hard. There are lots of restrictions and people are afraid of the messaging here. The Trump campaign messaging cannot be to take the Democrat bait, to be on defense, to acknowledge that it was wrong about the mask. It wasn't wrong about the masks. It wasn't wrong about the country. The only way it was wrong about the country is that they, they bought into the lie that we had to shut it down and that we should still be shutting it down. You've got to run against the shutdown. The shutdown is the Democrats' campaign. It's how they want to steal the election through the mail-in voting. It's how they want to suppress your vote. It's how they, they want to keep a lid on this economy. They're, they're open about it at this point. You've got to run against the shutdown and yet the Trump campaign won't do it. You know, the, the Trump campaign, when it's just Trump, he seems to have great instincts here, but they, 
they keep on they keep on making the misstep of allowing the left to dictate the terms of the debate. Nowhere did you see this more clearly than in an interview he just did, some clips of it have been released, with Jonathan Swan, a very sharp interviewer who was interviewing with Axios on HBO. Just take a listen to a dispute they get in over the COVID numbers. Take a look at some of these charts. I'd love to. We're gonna look. Let's look. And if you look at death, started to go up again. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than we're the lower world? lower than what is that? Europe. In what? In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't. You can't do that. You have Why to go. Can't I do that? You have to go by. You have to go by where. Look, here is the United States. You have to go by the cases. The cases. Why are not there. as a proportion when of population? When we have somebody, what it says is when you have somebody that yeah. has where there's a case. Oh, okay. The people that live sure. from oh. those cases. It's surely a relevant statistic to say if the U.S. has X population and X percentage of death of that population no, versus you South have to Korea. No, go by the cases. So what we're what we're listening to in this debate is not a debate over science. It's a debate over narrative, right? What what President Trump wants is to talk about the death rate by cases, by people who have tested positive for the virus and what percentage of them are dying, which is a very relevant statistic. What Jonathan Swan wants to talk about is death rate as a percentage of the whole U.S. population. And then he's comparing the U.S. population to South Korea, for instance. And the the obvious answer here is the populations are not comparable. Our political traditions are not comparable. Our geography is not comparable. Our our political system, not not comparable. And, And so there, there is just going to be a progression of the virus in America. Even Dr. Fauci told us we're not going to get herd immunity even with a vaccine. So the virus is going to spread and you've just got to deal with how you can keep the deaths as a percentage of cases down. That's the point President Trump was making, though I think in the heat of the interview, he, he wasn't quite making the argument as quickly or concisely as he should. Then you have Jonathan Swan saying, yeah, but okay, that number makes you look good. So I want to use the number that makes you look bad. It's a fight over the narrative, and it, and it raises this question. One, why is, why is the president even putting himself in a situation where the left can dictate the narrative? Why is President Trump doing an interview with Axios on, on HBO? Not exactly a friendly outlet. Frankly, Chris Wallace on Fox News is not a friendly outlet. So why is he putting himself in that situation? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'll give you probably the most extreme example of this. There was a big debate that broke out on Twitter the other day. The debate was over whether two plus two equals four or two plus two equals five. I'm not joking. This was a, this was trending for the day. People were actually arguing and the left was arguing that two plus two can equal five, which is exactly what the totalitarian regime in George Orwell's 1984 says. They say two plus two equals five and they, they force the protagonist, Winston Smith, to acknowledge not even just the two plus two equals five, but the two plus two equals whatever the party says it is. And this all began because a, a, a meme maker posted on, on Twitter. He says, woke, woke minis, two plus two equals four, a perspective in white Western mathematics that marginalizes other possible values. Right, it's just a joke because left-wingers have been saying that objective reason and hard work and even mathematics is a Western white concept and people of color should reject that, should reject that idea. 
right, people of color, this, this way to analogize through identity politics, the experience of all other people with black people in America, even though obviously, as we discussed earlier, that doesn't make any sense. But then you had people on the left actually defending the idea that two plus two equals five. And without going into the, the tediousness of their silly arguments, they said, look, numbers, they're just symbols, right? So we can make the symbols mean whatever we want the symbols to mean. If we want, if we want two to really be two and a half, then okay, then two plus two equals five because two is two and a half and two and a half plus two and a half is five. And five can be banana and gibbledy gobbledy goop, right? That the words and the numbers that we're using, they're just symbols and they have no, no relationship to anything real. That's a left-wing point of view. That's a progressive point of view that, that we are not bound by anything real, including our human nature. We can change anything. We can, we can change uh, lies, damned lies and statistics, right? These numbers don't mean anything at all. All they have to do is fit our narrative and our narrative is, is whatever we will our narrative to be, right? This, another big difference here between the right and the left, the, the left believes that they can construct the world based on nothing more than their own unfettered imagination. And the right, conservatives know that's not possible. There's something that is enduring. It's called human nature. There's reality, right? The great conservative consolation that reality reasserts itself in the end. This debate over whether two plus two equals four, two plus two equals five, or can equal five, that is at work right now in this campaign. Do we want to maintain anything resembling our, our reality? Or do we want to toss it all aside? literally burn the country to the ground, burn our principles to the ground and reconstruct them on the antagonistic imagination of the Democratic Party. That, that's working at all levels right now on the left, in the media, in the, the so-called experts and the social scientists, and all the way up to their presidential nominee, who is endorsed by the most radical anti-American people in the country and whose support he won't disavow. Those are the stakes of the election. We'll see it in November. Will two plus two equal four or will two plus two equal whatever the Democratic Party tells you it is? Those are high stakes. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Get your mailbag questions. And I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. I'll see you tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Supervising producers, Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Assistant director, Pavel Widowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Audio mixer, Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup, Nika Geneva. Production assistant, Ryan Love. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. If you prefer facts over feelings, aren't offended by the brutal truth, and you can still laugh at the insanity filling our national news cycle, well, tune in to The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get a whole lot of that and much more. See you there.